Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. We have a new government in Spain this week after the dramatic and sudden overthrow of now former Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy, who lost a no-confidence motion in Parliament last week. But how long can the man who deposed him, Pedro Sánchez, hope to govern, given that his Socialist Party holds just 84 of the 350 seats in Congress? That's one of the questions I'll be putting to Guy Hedgeco in Madrid. And Anne McLaughlin will bring us up to date on the extraordinary story of the staged murder of the Russian journalist Arkady Babchenko in Kiev last week. Babchenko, of course, turned up at a police conference about his own murder, looking very much alive and well. It's Spain first, though, and Guy Hedgeco is on the line from Madrid. Guy, Mariano Rajoy's ejection from office after seven years as prime minister was brutal and swift. For those who might not have followed the story closely last week, can you just recap for us how did his demise come about? Well, a court sentence uh, was given by the the high court um, against Rajoy's popular party and linking it explicitly to a long-standing corruption scandal called the Gortel scandal, which was to do with uh, mainly to do with um, the giving of public contracts in exchange for bribes and commissions in uh, different regions across Spain. It, it, this uh, investigation had been going on for the best part of a decade. There have been lots of scandals linked to it, some sub-scandals, if you like. But here finally was a court sentence which explicitly linked the governing party to uh, this scandal. It's, um, it, it said that the party had been linked to institutional corruption. It cast doubt on a, uh, a court testimony that Rajoy had given last year in the high courts. It said that um, it was sort of cast doubt on the, on, the, on the credibility of that testimony. And it also um, said that it appeared that there was or there had been a slush fund belonging to the popular party that had run for many years. So all these elements together um, was simply too much, really, for the for the opposition to um, to resist presenting a, a motion of no confidence. So the Socialist Party, which was uh, was the biggest uh, opposition party, almost immediately after that court sentence uh, announced it was presenting a um, a motion of no confidence against Rajoy. Now, three motions of no confidence have been presented um, against prime ministers in Spanish democracy um, previously. None of them have been successful. And that's partly because it's very difficult um, due to the, the, the rules in place, according to the Constitution, to win one. Um, because if you present a motion of no confidence, you have to be prepared to govern yourself. So essentially, it's an investiture vote for the person bringing the, the motion against the sitting prime minister. Um, and um, Pedro Sanchez was, um, to the surprise of many, able to gather just enough support uh, by a margin of four votes in Congress on Friday in order to unseat Rajoy. And that automatically meant that he was a new prime minister. And there was a significant moment, Guy, I think just before the vote, maybe the day before, when the Basque nationalist uh, members of parliament switched sides and announced that they wouldn't be supporting Rajoy in that vote. Yes, that's right. The, The Basque nationalist party was absolutely key in all of this. They only have five seats in Congress, so it's a small party, but they were the, the, the party that held the, the, the key to all of this because they were the last party to the last party of any significance to announce which way they were going to vote. They had voted in favor of uh, Rajoy's budget um, just day, a few days earlier. So in, in theory, they were allies of his in Parliament, but they didn't want to be seen as the party that kept Rajoy in power despite all this scandal. And also, there was a certain amount of tension between the Basque nationalists and Rajoy due to his handling of the Catalan crisis. So that was also in the air. And 
almost at the very last moment, or the day before the vote, the Basque nationalists said that they would be voting against him. And that essentially sealed his fate. One thing that puzzles me, Guy, I wanted to ask you about before we come to the new government, and it's this. If Rajoy had resigned ahead of the the no confidence motion, and I think it was clear before the vote that he was going to lose it once the Basques made their position clear, if he had resigned, the Partido Popular, which he led, could have stayed in power, isn't that right? So I'm just wondering, why didn't he fall on his sword in order to save his party? Well, there's been a a huge amount of speculation about that particular point, um, and it still hasn't really been resolved. I mean, you're right. I mean, he, he could have at least had some kind of say over what would happen next. He could have appointed a successor um, if he if he had resigned instead of losing the vote. Um, and you know, presumably that successor may have had to call elections. But there would have been, you know, there's a feeling there would have been some kind of control of the situation on Rajoy's part. Instead, he just let the vote happen. Now, there, there are a number of theories. <clears throat> One of them is uh, simply that Rajoy was looking out for himself um, above all else. And he, he felt that resigning in those circumstances was simply too humiliating. Um, now, that's a criticism that has come above all from the left, you know, a very critical criticism saying that he was always a, uh, a leader who's looking out for his own, his own career. I mean, th- there's a certain amount of credibility to that. Um, but I think perhaps you also have to take into account the fact that he was or is a politician who always has seemed extremely reluctant to take the big decisions. Um, he always has tried to hang on till the very last moment or, or even a- avoid taking a, a decision altogether. You know, he did it back in 2012 when um, Spain had to request a, a financial bailout from the EU. There was so much um, speculation surrounding that. Um, it looked as if it was going to be inevitable. And he kept saying, no, no, no. And eventually he did request the the bailout. But that was a sort of typical example of how he has worked. He likes to sit tight and wait until the very last moment. And I think what we saw with this uh, no confidence motion was that sort of philosophy taken to an absolute extreme by Rajoy. Okay. now, well, the new prime minister is uh, the Socialist Party leader, Pedro Sanchez. Tell us something about him. Well, he's a very different figure to Rajoy. He has a very different profile. Um, he's an economist. Um, he's 46 years old. He only came to political prominence really quite recently. He sort of came out of nowhere um, to win the party leadership in 2014. He surprised a lot of people. He wasn't a, a very well-known figure then. Um, and he sort of emerged as a, a sort of young, quite moderate figure um, with a sort of modern Uh, vision of Spain. Um, And two years later, he ran into trouble when he was uh, forced to resign by his own party because of the political paralysis um, caused when he refused to put his support behind um, Rajoy's party in parliament and allow it to to form a new government. He said, uh, we're not supporting a conservative, a new, uh, we're not going to ease the formation of a new conservative government. So um, he voted against and eventually his party um, turned against him and threw him out. Now, just a few months later, he, he performed a remarkable comeback um, by winning the party's ensuing primary. Um, and many people have written him, him off and written his political career off by that stage. And so he came back um, in 2016. And, you know, he he is you know much the same figure as he was when he first um, came to prominence. He's not seen as, as particularly a, a radical figure. He hasn't shaken up the party a great deal, but he's very pro-European. Um, he has a lot of 
support within the party now. I think he's worked quite hard on that. Um, but it's been quite difficult for him in recent months with the Catalan issue because it's been difficult for him to um, sort of get into the limelight because he's been in, in opposition. Now, he leads a party that has fewer than a quarter of the seats in Parliament. So how does he hope to government? Can, can he lead a stable government? Well, this is going to be the weakest government uh, that Spain has seen in its democratic era. Um, certainly, if you look at it just in terms of uh, the number of seats it has, you know, that's less than a quarter of seats in Congress. So that really is incredibly fragile. He's relying on a huge array of other parties um, in Congress. Or he did rely last week when he uh, got voted in. Uh, and those parties range from you know, Podemos, which are, who are to the left of the socialists, to um, a broad array of uh, regional nationalist parties. So that includes the, the, the Basque nationalists, who are sort of conservatives, um, and then um, Catalan nationalists. So you've got Carlos Puigdemont's party, um, known as PDCAT. You've got the Catalan Republican left. You know, those are two of the parties that um, were right at the forefront of the Catalan independence movement. Then you've got one or two um, other um other nationalist parties from Valencia, from the Basque country as well. So, you know, there's a real um, a real sort of variety across the, the spectrum there that he's dealing with. And so he's going to be facing a lot of pressures. You know, I think from, from Podemos, he's going to be facing a lot of pressures on social and economic issues, for example, perhaps to spend a bit more on, on uh, health care and education and so on. But from the, the other parties, the nationalists, particularly Catalan nationalists, he's likely to face other kinds of pressures, specifically political ones related to the territorial issue. So it's going to be very difficult, I think, for him to juggle all of those different pressures. And I think it'd be surprising if this government manages to last more than a few months. And just to clarify, Guy, it, it, the intention is that it will be a socialist government with the support of these other parties. In, in other words, these parties will not be part of the government. Am I right? Yes, that's right. And we've, we've heard the names of a few uh, ministers of Sanchez so far. Um, his foreign minister, for example, is Josep Borrell. He's a, he's a veteran socialist. Um, and Pedro Sanchez has said that all the socialists are going, oh, sorry, Pedro Sanchez has said all that his ministers will be socialists. So it's not a coalition. Um, it will be a purely socialist government filled by socialist militants. Now, one of the biggest challenges challenges he'll face, you alluded to it a moment ago, is the crisis over Catalan independence. Rajoy and, and his party took a particularly hardline stance on this. Do you think Sanchez will take a different approach? Well, I think he's going to have to, um, but it's going to be a real balancing act. Um, and it could be the, the defining issue of his leadership. Um, because, you know, on the one hand, he's got to keep some of these people who voted for him, these parties, the Catalan nationalists and so on, who voted for him happy um, with his his policies. But on the other hand, he's got to avoid being seen to be sort of caving in to the Catalan independence movement by his voters and by the rest of his party. And I think there are um, senior figures within the Socialist Party who are watching this you know, very sceptically, wondering how it's going to go, um, wondering if it was a, a wise move at all for Sanchez to have pushed Rajoy out, um, if uh, the cost of it was going to be to essentially get into government with the help of, uh, of pro-independence parties. So he's going to have to deal with all of that. Um, I mean, I, I think one of the first demands he's going to face will be linked to the, the Catalan politicians who are in prison at the moment, 
um, ahead of their trial, which is expected in the autumn. The Catalan politicians who, who are allegedly involved in the, the recent independence drive and are facing charges of rebellion and so on. Now, arguably, you could say that Sanchez doesn't have any say in that because he's prime minister. He's nothing to do with the judiciary. And, and that will be a, a decision for the court. But he can appoint, for example, um, you know, a state prosecutor, an attorney general. Um, and those kinds of appointments could be pretty key um, in term, terms of how the Catalan issue pans out. But it is going to be very much a, um, a high wire act for him, I think. But there's no indication, is there, that he has already committed himself to giving anything in return to the Catalan independent, pro-independence parties who supported him? Well, as far as we know, he, he hasn't, or at least, you know, he, he has um, said when, when he was organising this motion of no confidence, he said, I, I'm not negotiating with anyone. I'm going to hold the motion of no confidence. Um, if anyone wants to join it, they're welcome. That was essentially his message. And I think that was a wise move because he wanted at all costs to avoid being seen to be doing any kind of backroom deals with anyone, particularly with the Catalan nationalists. So as far as we know, he hasn't done any deals. Now, um, I, I'm sure he's going to face accusations in the coming days and weeks of having um, organized some kind of deals under the table Um Perhaps uh, Ciudadanos to his right or the popular party itself of Mariano Rajoy will make those kinds of accusations. And they, and they have sort of started um, agitating a bit in, in that sense, sort of claiming that he's um, he's um, causing himself problems. He's, he's risking the destabilization, destabilization of Spain um, by getting the support of these parties. But as far as we know, he hasn't actually done any deals with them. And now, Guy, it seems that the... Partido Popular, the party that has been ousted from power, they're not going away quietly and they're now threatening to disrupt the passage of the budget, which was, which was essentially uh, their own budget. Um, what's going on there? Well, yeah, this is all linked to the um, the vote last week, it seems. Now, now we, we've had the, the approval of the budget through Congress. Um, all that was left for it was its approval in the Senate. Now, this is the 2018 budget, which kept getting delayed because of... Um, political, uh, a political impasse earlier this year. Um, but it looked as if it was going to be a formality going through the Senate. Now, the removal of Rajoy complicates that because Rajoy's popular party has a majority in Senate. Um, even though he's no longer in power, it still controls the Senate. And so it can disrupt the passage of uh, the, the budget. And initially, when Rajoy was removed from power, um, people from the PP high up in the party said, well, we, we, you know, the budget will still go through. That's that's no problem at all. Since then, they seem to have changed their tune. And there have been accusations aimed at the popular party that they're out for revenge, specifically against the Basque Nationalist Party, that party which um, whose, whose five key votes essentially um, ousted Rajoy. Now, the, the Basque Nationalists um, were seen as having got some great concessions from the PP in the budget. Um, they've got over 500 million euros in terms of um, infrastructure and overall inve investment. Um, you know, they, they want to get a, a, a high-speed rail link built up there. So there's a lot of money in the budget going up to the Basque country, and the, the, the Basque nationalists felt they got a really good deal. Now the PP is essentially saying that it's in, in the Senate, it's going to start presenting amendments um, to improve, as it put it, the budget. Now, the general feeling is that um, when it says improve, what it means is um, remove uh, perhaps some of those um, those benefits that the Basques um, had received in the original budget. So that the Basque nationalists are very unhappy about this, and they have 
been open, openly saying that the, the PP is out for revenge against them. So it seems as if this new, suppose a new era of politics in Spain is opening in, in rather a bitter manner. Thanks, Guy. We'll leave it there for now. Thanks a lot, Chris. Pleasure as always. You're listening to the Irish Times. Journalists attending a police press conference in Kiev last week about the murder of the dissident Russian journalist Arkady Babchenko got quite a surprise when the murder victim himself walked in the door to announce that news of his death had been greatly exaggerated. Ukraine's SBU security service said it faked his murder to foil an alleged Russian plot to kill him and other critics of the Kremlin. But while there was genuine delight among Babchenko's friends and media colleagues at news that he was, after all, alive, there was also indignation at the deception involved in the staging of his murder and the false information disseminated about it. Our Eastern European correspondent, Daniel McLaughlin, joins me now from Budapest. Dan, the word extraordinary is probably an overused one in the media business, but this was an extraordinary set of events. And I don't know if we've got to the bottom of it yet, but can I ask you first to tell us something about Arkady Babchenko? What's his background? Yeah, uh, he's a a well-known Russian journalist, investigative journalist, very outspoken. Um, He's particularly interesting in some ways because he was actually, even though he's become uh, more and more strongly in recent years, a a critic of Vladimir Putin and his politics and his uh, uh, military adventures uh, around the region, around the world. uh, He has actually, he did actually, as a younger man, uh, fight for the Russian military. Um, He fought in two wars in Chechnya back in the 90s um, before really getting into journalism after that. Um, And as I say, becoming a very strong critic uh, in print uh, of of Vladimir Putin and his regime. Um, And back about, if we go back about 18 months or so, uh, in fact, to the end of 2016, some very strong criticism that Babchenko put online, I think on his Facebook page, of uh, Russian military operations in Ukraine and in Syria, um, attracted a very, very strong reaction from supporters of Putin. And Babchenko said that he had been openly threatened and that his family had been threatened and that he didn't feel safe in Russia anymore. So in early 2017, he left Russia um, on the grounds of security, as he put it, and he moved to Kiev, where he has carried on his extremely strong criticism of of Russian policy and and Putin in particular, and has become really a a more and more high-profile media critic of Putin in, in the years leading up to this extraordinary event last week. And then what was initially reported last week? Tell us about the, the, the murder story, if you like, first of all. Yeah. Well, a, a lot of time uh, and effort has been put into actually sort of uh, figuring out the timeline of everything. And how it seems to have gone was that um, uh, a week ago, last Tuesday evening, um, around about 9 p.m. Uh, Ukrainian time, um, news broke that, that Babchenko had been shot. Uh, it seems that the very first message, the very first news of this came from his wife in an SMS to a friend of theirs, uh, another journalist for a, a TV station that Babchenko had done work, work for in Ukraine, saying that Arkady has been shot, um, but the uh, ambulance has taken him away alive. He was supposedly still um, still alive, and they were trying to save him, in, save him in the ambulance on the way to hospital. Shortly after that, news broke that, in fact, doctors hadn't managed to save him and that he died of his wounds. Um, sometime after that, still on Tuesday night, 
Um, security officials in Ukraine released some details of the supposed shooting. They said that Babchenko had popped out to the shops to get some bread. Even they threw that detail in. And when he'd come back, he'd been set upon by an attacker uh, at the door to his apartment in Kiev and that he'd been shot three times. Um, those bullets had killed him. Um, sometime overnight, I think Tuesday to Wednesday, photographs had appeared of Babchenko lying in a pool of blood. Um, and there was a, a, a very, very strong, immediate and genuine outpouring of, 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 of shock and horror and grief for uh, the, the, the apparent death of Babchenko from his colleagues, both in Russia and in Ukraine and elsewhere. Um, people, a lot of people were really devastated by this um, because of you know, they thought they'd lost a great friend and someone who they thought was a terrific journalist uh, and a very genuine, very honest uh, man with lots of integrity. Um, and also what it meant for journalists in in Russia and in Ukraine. They thought that it was the latest signal that, that you were never safe if you criticized Putin anywhere. Um, and that feeling and th those kind of emotions, you know, obituaries came out. Lots of uh, tributes were written to Babchenko by his colleagues. Lots of people, journalists from uh, from Russia were making their way to, to Kiev to report on the story, but also to mourn his death. Uh, a kind of memorial event was planned for the following evening, the Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. in Kiev on, on the Maidan Square, which is obviously a, a very resonant place. Um, and then came the the press conference at 5 p.m. Yeah, on yeah. The Wednesday evening, which changed everything, obviously. And of course, and, and I was going to say, not many people get to follow the reaction on the news to their, their own death, but 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 he did because, as you were about to say, the following day, then he walked in on, on this uh, press conference. What explanation then did the Ukrainian security service give for its actions? They said that this was the only thing that we could, the only plan that we could come up with, which would allow us to to both save Babchenko from the killers, because they said there was indeed an imminent plot to kill him, which they traced back to the Russian security services, um, but also to gain as much evidence as possible on the people who were behind this plot, not only in Ukraine, but in Russia. They said, and Babchenko absolutely backed this up in his own uh, in, in the statements that he gave at that press conference and subsequently, he said that they'd been, the, the SBU, the, the Ukrainian security service had found out about this plot a couple of months ago. He had been informed a month ago and they tried to figure out what to, how best to deal with it. And they had decided that they would fake his death so that um, the people involved in the plot believed that it had taken place successfully, that the people they had, that the man they had hired to kill him was reliable. And so the people involved would continue to communicate. Those communications would be monitored by the SBU, therefore gathering more evidence against the people involved. And also, crucially, the SBU says, um, they would gain access to a list of uh, dozens of people, a hit list, who were supposedly being targeted by the people behind this and ultimately the Russian security services. And that is a crucial point, isn't it, Dan? They say they needed to keep the secrecy going for some time after his death because they were continuing to gather useful information. That's right. That's, the, that's absolutely their key point. They said, we looked at lots of different ways of doing it. Babchenko says he was in on those discussions too. Um, they tried to find any way that they could do it, which did not involve this kind of uh, use of fake news, which I'm sure we'll talk about as well. Um, but they just couldn't find another way to do this, which would allow them to continue 
for a certain amount of time gathering evidence. Um, uh, we think through through uh, inter by intercepting the, the communications between the people supposedly uh, who were plotting this and who intended Babchenko just to be the first in a series of high-profile killings against Russian exiles and critics of the Russian regime in Ukraine. And one, just as an aside, before we get to that issue of fake news and, and also whether the, the explanation offered was credible or not, uh, an aside, when he turned up at the press conference, one of the things I think that particularly surprised people or shocked people was Babchenko apologised to his wife and everybody assumed then that not even his wife hadn't known about the plot. But I think he subsequently clarified that today and he said actually she did know from the beginning. Yeah, yeah he did. This is something that's come up several times. Um, uh, in conversations between journalists and people looking into this, you know, some people who thought that his wife didn't know thought, how could, could Babchen could be so callous? But he said, look, guys, um, of course she knew. I mean, this was happening. This setup was taking place in front of her eyes in the apartment. Um, and she was chosen as the first person to send the information about the supposed death to um, a friend of theirs who would then kind of start to spread the news around um, to to uh, society and, and, and the media at large. So his wife was in on it, but I think he, he apologized to her simply because you know, it had obviously been an incredibly stressful time for her and the family, and she hadn't been able to really tell anyone else. So she had also been inundated with lots of messages of condolence and so on, and for a certain amount of time, until the truth of the plot was revealed, she couldn't let the world know that her husband hadn't actually been killed on the doorstep of their, their apartment the night before. And it sounds like it was quite a gruesome scene. I mean, he said he used pig's blood, or pig's yeah, blood he, was used, yes. <laughs> he did, he said they had a makeup artist there, they had makeup, they had uh, pig's blood um, smeared all over his shirt. There were three holes in his shirt to make it look, to, to, which were supposedly the, the entry wounds of the bullets. He even said, you know, I took a bit of pig's blood in my mouth and let it dribble out again. So, and, and the picture is gruesome, you know, he's lying there. Uh, on the parquet floor of his flat, surrounded by a big pool of, of blood. So, um, so yeah, that was that was a very gruesome image, which also obviously uh, horrified a lot of his colleagues, and, uh, and and many of whom were extremely upset. Obviously, not only about his death, but but by the way the whole thing was handled when it was revealed that he was still alive. And now that the dust has settled on all of this, Dan, is the explanation offered by the security services in Ukraine seen as credible? Have they convinced people both in Ukraine and abroad that um, this really elaborate plot and involving such deception was necessary? I don't think they have yet. No, they, they haven't really convinced people and people won't be convinced either in Ukraine and abroad until um, the case is absolutely nailed down and proven in court, I don't think. Um, they have arrested a man who they say is the organizer of this. Uh, he's a, um, a businessman, uh, the executive director of an arms company in Ukraine. Um, he was arrested and he is supposedly the go-between between the, the, the hired killer and uh, the man in, in Russia. Um, and this guy, Boris Herman, he's been named as Boris Herman, absolutely denies the, that, that he was involved in a real plot to kill Babchenko. He says that he was, he appeared in court last week, and he said that he was also in on the sting, but a different sting. He said he was actually working for, a, for counterintelligence in Ukraine to try and entrap people in Russia who intended to kill people in Ukraine. So um, he says that, that he actually says that perhaps there was a there was a real plot. He was he was trying to help another 
Ukrainian security agency investigate this plot, and he didn't really intend to be part of any, any uh, of anyone really being killed in Ukraine. So so far, it's just getting more and more murky. Um, and until the security services come up with really solid evidence, really solid evidence, um, not only of, of, of Boris Herman's supposed involvement as an organizer in Ukraine, but also this supposed link back to figures in Russia who were behind all this, who drew up allegedly a list of a hit list for people in Ukraine and also allegedly paid Herman $40,000, um, some for himself and some for the uh, hired killer to do away with Babchenko. Until all that is really nailed down, there will be lots and lots of questions still for for everyone involved, the SBU and, and the Ukrainian prosecutors. And will there be any forum down through which these things might become clear? Presumably Boris Herman will go on trial. At that point, maybe will we actually get to the bottom of what actually did happen here? Uh, well, certainly the, the prosecutors have, have charged him with terrorism. They, they intend to put him on trial. Um, We'll see. I, mean, I suppose the, my question is, is, is the Ukrainian court system r- robust enough, you know, that you yeah. know, they would be required to sort of answer these questions yeah. in, a, in, a, in a transparent yeah. way? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, the, uh, unfortunately, I mean, the, of course, there is a, a burden of proof on the prosecutors in the SBU to, 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 to show what was really um, going on here and whether they really did uncover this plot and how dangerous this plot was, how realistic this death threat was to Babchenko. And, and we thought initially 30 people. Now there is a list of 47 people who were potential targets for uh, for murder, according to the SBU. But there is a, a, a deep, deep lack of faith in the SBU, in the prosecutor's office, in the way the court system works in Ukraine. It hasn't really been reformed since the, the Maidan revolution back in 2014. There's still the, the, the court system and the security services are still subject to massive political influence. Um, they have failed to get to the bottom. On the investigative side, they failed to get to the, to the bottom of major killings and major cases in the last few years. The court system is still riddled with corruption and incompetence and inconsistency. So um, it's, a, it's a major test in many ways for the Ukrainian system and also for uh, to, to try and ensure that it does save its credibility um, and even gain some credit and credibility with, with, the, um, with the Western countries that have been Ukraine's major backers since the, the Maidan revolution back in 2014. We've had a lot of awkward questions raised here about media credibility. You have an independent, respected journalist essentially taking part in a, in a plot to create fake news. Uh, the security services of a of a, a Western ally in Ukraine, you know, involved in, in the same thing. So, how much damage do you think has been done here in terms of media credibility, the credibility of the Ukrainian security services, and so on? Uh, it really depends who you ask. I think when it will really come down to how to, to what we just discussed, whether uh, when all the evidence is produced, when we go through the trial process, whether the prosecutors in Ukraine can make these charges stick, and whether they can really trace a convincing line back to the alleged plotters, the alleged masterminds, financiers of this plot back in Russia. Um, now, a lot of people are saying they, they, they have criticized Ukraine for, for staging this death. They have criticized Babchenko for being part of it. But Babchenko himself has said, look, guys, you know, in this case, even more than being a journalist, I was let's say a potential corpse. You know, I was a potential victim in this, a potential murder victim. I had to do what I thought best and what the security experts from the SBU told me they thought best to save my life, to protect my family and to try and catch the guys that were behind it. Um, 
we're very sorry that you had to be misled for, for this period of time, but uh, isn't it much more important that we foiled, as the SBU says, and as, as Babchenko at the moment at least is, is liable to believe, that we did foil a major murder plot that targeted not just Babchenko, but other people. Um, but as we said before, the, 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 the onus really is now on Ukraine to make this stick. If it doesn't, and if it falls apart, as other major cases have in Ukraine, or at least they haven't made any major progress towards convincing convictions, then um, this will be a stain that, that sticks very badly on on um, on Ukraine's reputation, um, and which uh, which perhaps will not reflect very well on Babchenko as, uh, uh, as, as time passes as well. Okay. Well, Dan, one has a feeling we've a lot more yet to find out about this story. No doubt you'll be on the case. Thanks a lot for that. All right. Cheers, Chris. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.